has conquered death's sting. In the reality that in this moment, we experience a lot of sting in the moment. And yet he's conquered it. Let's pray. Father, we come in front of you this morning declaring what we already know is true. That you are the God of the universe. Heaven and earth and hell tremble at your name. Even in the moments where we do not live out of and in the truth that you have conquered death's sting, it is true. We don't make it true. We don't think it's true. It is true. Jesus, you took on flesh and you have conquered the greatest enemy of all time. Death, Satan, and sin. And because of that, we are more than conquerors. Because you give us strength. Let this burn and sear into our hearts today. That we leave this place taunting the grave because you have conquered it. Lord, do what only you can do in this moment. Take these humble words and thoughts from the study of your word and pour them out as a fragrant offering before the Father and send the Spirit to change hearts We depend on you now. Without you, all is lost and waste. But with you, there's great treasure. Help us, Lord, now to see the treasure, to covet and long for the treasure, and to give everything else in exchange for the treasure of heaven. You, Jesus Christ, our Savior, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Conquered death's thing in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. Regularly occurring, unnatural event in the world is death. Since the Garden of Eden, every human has died. There are no exceptions. And physical death is only the outer confirmation of the inner reality that we are dead spiritually. A quick search on the internet can turn up some stats for you in this area surrounding death. 83% of Americans... Believe in an afterlife. 83%. That's why the world looks as the most religious country in the world. In the Western world, for sure. 83% of Americans believe in an afterlife. 66% believe in the existence of both heaven and hell. 37% of people have given significant thought. And they've planned the matters that death. They've planned it. But many of us and many of our fellow citizens do everything possible to hide from the reality of death. Anita Hannig is a professor at Brandeis University where she teaches several classes, one of which is a class on death and dying. Doesn't that excite you? I mean, like, can't you see the little freshman and sophomore signing up for Professor Hannig's class on death and dying. They're so excited, I'm sure. 
During the course of study, the students are introduced to the ways culture around the world deals with death. The reality of death is beyond all culture. It transcends everything. They're not only introduced to death around the world, but they see that many of the cultures around the world are very different from the culture they're now living in. The cultures around the world are up close and personal with death. They see it. They experience it. They cannot hide from it. Uh, Pastor Aaron sent us an article not long ago about a pastor's response to the coronavirus. He and his family have been to Zambia on missions this this year, and they left a, a culture in the United States that is crazed with the mania of possibly dying from a virus, and they land in Zambia, and they're there long enough that they start looking around and nobody's wearing a mask, nobody's afraid, nobody's even talking about this virus. And so he asked the pastor, like, why isn't anybody taking this serious? And he said, because it's about fourth or fifth on our list of things that we will die from this year. It's really not as consuming as you think it is in your country. In our country, it's not consuming. We deal with plagues, and epidemics every year. And our people die from them. It's the difference in people coming from a culture that tries to deny that we're all dying and a culture where they live up close and personal with it. I can remember the stories of my grandparents when I was a kid telling me, my great-grandparents telling me about people dying at home. Some of you might remember this. Some of you might be old enough to remember this. Very few. <laughs> but people died at home, you know. They didn't get taken to a facility somewhere, put behind sterile doors and die in a, in a nice, comfortable room. They died in their beds often. And you know what happened? The whole family was rounded up, and all the friends and neighbors, and they came to the house, and they sat with the dead. Little kids. My grandmother tells stories about little kids crawling up in the bed with their dead grandparent. Not like a few minutes after death. A day after death. Two days after death. And they're telling stories. And they're remembering a life lived. And they're eating food. And they're singing songs. And they're praying prayers. The dead person's there with them. They introduced one another to death close and personal. It was reality. Everyone is dying. What do we do? Oh, we, we take them to facilities so they can die in a more pleasant way. And the very same culture, listen to me, that denies death in that way, embraces death by calling things that are death not death. We give fancy terms to things like abortion, which is the murder of a living human being. We make it a medical term. We talk about clumps of cells and little fetuses. And we murder them. Thousands a day in this country. Behind clean antiseptic doors with medical procedures. And we drink our lattes and we go on about our life. And their lives are stuffed, snuffed out 63 million and counting. 
And we act like it's not death. But that's not the only death we try to deny. We try to deny the death of those who are living around us. Our country is overrun with a death that surrounds the drug culture. Overrun by it. Not those people out there. These people in here. Overrun with it. And adultery. And pornography. And all of the other sins that signify our death. And we deny them all. And we clean them all up. And we put them in nice, neat little packages. And we act like they're not there. And I'm telling you, death is real. And the sin that leads to death is real. It's more real than the things that we see with our eyes and touch with our hands. Is this spiritual reality that we're hiding from. This Professor Hannig, she goes from talking about other cultures to talking about our culture, and she quotes this in an article that I read of this surgeon who wrote a book named Being Mortal and West, West, What Matters in the End. That's thrilling, I'm sure. Uh, that, is, that is this, that there's a medicalized view of death frequently which results in people dying in institutions cut off from their loved ones and comforts. Has that ever been more true than it is right now? In the middle of coronavirus, people dying in beds by themselves. People don't let their dogs go to vets and be put to sleep by themselves. But our fellow men and women and children are dying in hospitals by themselves right now because we're afraid. I'm in a profession, this guy says, this surgeon. I'm in a profession that has succeeded because of its ability to fix, he writes. If your problem is fixable, we know what to do. But if it's not, we have had no adequate answer to this question. It's troubling and it's called callousness in humanity and extraordinary suffering. What a profound reality, right? The fact that we as Western medical scientists cannot solve the problem of death has caused us to become callous and insensitive to the fact that we die. In other words, if I can't fix you, I'd rather put you away and forget about you. That's what he's saying. The death has become something, Professor Hannig says, that many Americans avoid and abhor. An enemy to be defeated is evident everywhere. A plethora of contemporary fantasies of immorality which range from anti-aging cream to efforts to download a person's brain so he or she can continue to live virtually, whatever that means, to cryonics, the practice of freezing and storing bodies or body parts in the hope that future scientists will thaw them and bring them back to life. Ted Williams' brain is frozen somewhere in Arizona for the hopes that the greatest hitter that ever played in baseball can be resurrected one day. This is our culture. This is you and me. It's not them out there. It's us, church. Isn't it interesting that in the United States we see death as an enemy? The reality is, as we will see today, that it's a much bigger enemy than anybody in this world could imagine. 
But what the Bible teaches us is that we do not have to, or excuse me, that we do not have the power to defeat this enemy. And we cannot avoid death because all have sinned and all must die. So what does the Bible teach us is our only hope in this life and the next. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians 15 with me. I'm trying to catch my breath. I feel like we've kicked off and things are moving 99,000 miles an hour. I love doing this. More than I love doing anything, I love doing this. You may not get out of here today. <laughs> Paul says this, I tell you, brothers, at the the greatest chapter in the Bible on resurrection life, the defeat of death. This is what he says. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, not, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body has to put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then, there it is, squared in your Bible, circle it, whatever you do, then shall come to pass the saying, that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Isaiah 25. It's a promise of God. Oh, death, where is your sting? Hosea 13, 14. The promise of God. Paul grabs these two promises from the Old Covenant. He puts them together in this passage as a taunt over the greatest enemy the world has ever known. Death where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The search to overcome death by any medical, scientific, or psychological power is hopeless. It is death being lived out in front of us, but the belief that Jesus Christ, our Savior, has conquered death is hope and life. We shouldn't be seeking to freeze ourselves in hope for a resurrection. We should bury ourselves and say, where's your sting? This body will get up from the grave. Today, we're going to see from this text that Christ conquered death and sin because he is the God-man. Taken on flesh, conquered death's sting. First, the resurrection is guaranteed because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Look at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The body of Christ, fully man, lived 
a full and obedient life, and then that flesh, which was sinless, took on death. He died. He experienced the first great death that we all face. He experienced it. He took it on in his flesh. The perishable cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and it must put on imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, Paul says. We shall not all sleep, but we are all going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Why, Paul? Because he spent the whole chapter saying the first Adam died and brought death to the whole world, but the second Adam has defeated death for all of his people. All those in Christ He defeated death for us. The resurrection is a guarantee. It's not a hope in the sense of a wish that might come true. It's a hope in the sense that it's sure. It cannot be changed. It will happen. Because Christ was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. Do you believe that Christ was raised from the dead? Do you really believe He was raised from the dead? If you believe that, then you must believe that you will be raised from the dead. That's what Paul says. It is a fact. I mean, he's already given us the first fruits of it. He was raised from the dead, and the power which raised him from the dead is so strong that he just raised some other folks up from the dead in Jerusalem to show you we're all going to be raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead, and therefore we are guaranteed to be raised with him. Second, in this text, we see that our perishable body must be transformed into the imperishable body through being resurrected with Christ. We have to go through the process, don't we? We can't short-circuit it. We can't avoid it. We all must experience death. Even, and you say, well, what about those that are changed to drink of life? It's a type of death. It's just like Enoch's death. It's just like Elijah's death. They experience death, just not in the way we experience it. Enoch walked with God, and he was not because God took him. He overcame death right there. He passed from this life to the next life right there. Elijah the same way. The great prophet came to the river. He was talking to Elisha in a moment, and a chariot of fire came down, and he was transported from this earth into the next life. That is what death is. The picture that those two events are painting for us is not some mystical thing that happened for just a couple of people, but he's showing us what happens to all of us in the same way when we die in the flesh, we live. We live. And so we have to go through the process. If we look at verse 53, this perishable body must put on imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. It's what Jesus did. The perishable And mortal body, which he lived in perfectly and sinlessly, died so that on the third day it was raised from the dead, imperishable and immortal, never to die again, and raised to new life so that he could be ascended and seated on the throne of his Father, where he is right now. He's not a spirit. He is the God-man in the flesh, in heaven, right now. And we will be there with him. It's the most beautiful passage to think on. When the perishable puts on not the imperishable and mortal puts on immortality, then this saying will come to pass. 
which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Which is where we want to go. Paul took these two promises from the old covenant and brings them over without a lot of explanation. He brings them over because this is the great truth of the Bible that what was lost in the garden will be regained at the end because of our Lord. And we will experience unbroken fellowship with him. Listen, death is more than physically dying. This is what death it is. It is the curse of God against our rebellion. Our father Adam sinned, and because he sinned, he was separated from God. He was ashamed of his relationship with his wife, and he was dead physically. At that moment, he was going to die. He didn't experience it in that moment, but he began to experience it. His body began to break down. He began to head towards the grave after his sin. But listen to me. I, you skip over those last two because we're so focused in 2020, maybe more than ever, we're focused on keeping bodies alive at all costs. It doesn't matter how much it costs. Shut the whole world down. Lock everybody away because we got to keep bodies alive. There's more to life than that. The greatest death was separation from God, the spiritual death. The next greatest thing which Adam experienced was the, was the breaking down of his relationship with his wife, which was shame, which caused them to put on clothes like Pastor Corey talked about not long ago. They made for themselves coverings because they were ashamed of themselves in, the, in each other's presence. They lost their relationship with God. They were cut off from good relationship with one another, and then they died. The greater death is spiritual. The greater death is our connection together. That's what we were created for. That's much more serious than dying physically. Jesus talks about it that way, doesn't he? Isn't Jesus pretty clear? People are trembling in the face of death, and Jesus says, don't fear death. The one who can kill your body, don't fear that guy. All he can do is kill your body. You need to fear the one who can cast your body and your soul into hell forever. Jesus talked about death like physical death was some small thing in comparison to the spiritual death which is real. The outer physical death is nothing more than a shell which paints the dark death of the Spirit. And that's why he, he says here in this passage, that perishable and mortal body and soul cannot go into the kingdom of heaven. It cannot. It must put on the imperishable and the immortal so that it can be in the presence of the risen Savior. That's the promise of the Bible. That's the promise of this passage, Grace Fellowship. So we've seen that the resurrection is guaranteed because Christ was raised from the dead. We've seen already in this passage the great truth that the perishable body has to be transformed into the imperishable body through being resurrected with Christ. And it will be. But third, I want us to see, answer this. How can we, how can we be certain that the resurrection and the conquering of death will truly happen? How can we be sure? Verse 56 says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Well, Paul talks about this in another place in Romans 7, and he says that the, in Romans 7 and 8, where he says that the, the law which God wrote was not a sin, but it caused sin within me to flare up. I wouldn't have even known it was sin, except God told me it was sin, and then once I knew, I couldn't stop doing it. You've ever had that experience? You see something and you can't unsee it. I mean, that's what it is. You 
You say something, and then you just say it over and over and over again. And you keep, in your mind, you're thinking, why do I keep saying that? I shouldn't say that. But you just keep saying it. Well, the law held up in front of us, the righteousness of God caused us, not the law is unrighteous or sinful, but because of the sin and unrighteousness in us. Once God's righteous law was raised up, we couldn't unsee it. And then we looked at our life and everything we were doing was sin. Paul goes down to the very simplest coveting law, right? He says, like, once I realized you are not supposed to want your neighbor's stuff, then I couldn't quit wanting my neighbor's stuff. Some of us need to know that. that this is a hard lesson to learn. Some of us like making rules because it makes us feel safe. Reality is, a lot of times, the unnecessary rules we're making as parents only inflame the desire of the child to rebel. <laughs> Senseless rules. I mean, you know, they do it all the time. You see that. I see it. In my own parent, I look back, I'm like, man, I was so stupid. I was believing the law doesn't make anybody do right. The law makes people do wrong. Not because the law is wrong, because I'm wrong. That's what Paul said about it. Listen. He says in this passage, death, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the rules. It's the power of sin. Do this. I got to do that, but we're like squirrels. That's a good thought. What about this? (laughs) And we're like squirrels after the things of this world. That's the power. But look what he says. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory, not through a new law, but through a person, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This has already been painted for the people of Israel a long time ago. This very picture that your victory, Israel, people of God, your victory is not in your ability, but in the champion's ability to win the victory. The victor's victory. That's where your victory is. Not in doing right and obeying every single jot and tittle so that God will love me, but knowing God loves me because His victor has already won. Completed the law, died the death, raised from the dead, conquered sin, conquered the grave. That's our victory. And they painted, God painted this picture a long time ago. Remember, I was talking to you about when man sin, fell into sin, and then the punishment that came. Separation from God, separation from one another, and ultimately death, physical, right? But in that same promise in, in Genesis chapter 3, church, didn't he make us a promise? And wasn't it a beautiful promise? You might not recognize it that way because it's in the middle of a curse, and we think about curses as totally other than, than a blessing. But this curse of our physical death is a blessing because now we don't live in death forever. We don't live in sin forever. We don't live in this broken down body forever. Thank God, if you're still young enough to think that your body isn't broken down, it's broken down. You just don't know it yet. And everything you do every day is only encouraging the breakdown. And in the middle of the curse, this is what God said. The seed of the serpent will strike the heel of the Son of Man. But the Son of Man will crush his head. And the rest of the Bible is the unfolding of the the reality of that promise. 
I've been listening to Maverick City all week. If you don't know who they are, go to Spotify, whatever you listen to, and get them. We, man, I'm telling you, promises. Go to that song first and just let it roll. 11 minutes of pure joy. Promises. God has made us promises, and he has delivered on those promises. So from that point, he's unfolding the promise. And what happens? Cain kills Abel. Death is a reality. Murder is a reality. Brother killing brother is a reality. And on and on, right? We could go. We can see it. We can trace it through the pages from here. Cain killed Abel, and his punishment was sevenfold. Anyone who takes his life will pay a sevenfold punishment from God. That's what God said over men. Lamech, his son down the line, what did he say? The curse or, or, the, or, the, or the curse of Cain is sevenfold, and the curse of Lamech is 77-fold. In other words, he was bragging about it. I'm the most vile man that's ever lived. I'm the most violent man that has ever lived. He named his sons after making weapons of war. He was violent. The whole world was filled with violence so much so that God destroyed the entire population except Noah and his family. And the curse and the seed of uh, Satan continued to try to overcome the seed of God, the promise of God, which was contained in that moment in Noah and that ark, right? And if we keep going, now I'm not going to go through the whole Old Testament. Don't worry. I told you I was going to get fired up and you're going to be here a while, but not that long. We want to jump ahead to this mountain peak that comes up for us in Samuel. His name is David. Israel needed another king. God had rejected her king. And he sent Samuel, the old man prophet, to Jesse's house. And Jesse showed up. I mean, Jesse and his boys line up. And Samuel sees the firstborn, Eliab, and he says, Oh, this must be him. He looks strong and strapping, just like a king. I knew that. Yeah, way to go, God. No, that's not him. What? That's not him. And he down the line, seven sons, seven no's. Jesse, is this all of them? You hear in that Samuel, like, thinking, did God get it wrong? Well, no, we got a youngest boy. I mean, he's kind of ruddy and fair-complected, and he keeps the sheep. Oh, there he comes right there. And the Bible says when Samuel saw him, he knew this is the one, the chosen one, my chosen one. And he anointed him the king. In 1 Samuel 16, you know what the next story is? You know. It's your favorite story as a kid in the Old Testament. One of them, David and Goliath. How many Sunday school lessons have you sat through church where they said, be David? I just relieve all your pressure. You and I are not David. You're not supposed to go live your life to try to be David. David is the chosen one of God over the people of Israel. And he is a shadow of the greater son of David who would be born in David's town to a small little family. A young girl gave birth to a son and she called his name Jesus. Insignificant at his birth. 
struggling, right? With all the things we struggle with. David, in chapter 17, he's just been anointed king. And he goes back and forth between Saul and his dad. And Saul and his dad, well, he's with his dad. And his dad, Jesse's an old man. He says, go out and check on your three oldest brothers. They're with the people of Israel. They're fighting in the field against the Philistines. I want to know they're okay. Take them some food and take a nice prize for the captain of their thousand. Give him a gift too. You know, it's Jesse's way of buying some favor. If your son's fighting in a, in a hand-to-hand mortal combat, you want the leader to really like you. Right? He's currying favor. So David, I mean, what boy would want to do this? This dude's been keeping sheep. He's not just been keeping sheep, but he's been by himself keeping sheep. And dad says, you get to go to the front line. He's like, boy, howdy, give me that food, let's go. He hits the path and he runs up on the battlefield. And he gets there just in time that for 40 days, this great giant champion of the Philistines has been coming out every day, morning and night, taunting the people of Israel and taunting their God, daring them. Come out here and face me. Come out here. My God's and your God. Let's fight. David showed up. He was visiting with some men there in the camp, and here comes the champion of the Philistines, and he starts to shout this blasphemous, taunting stuff at the people of Israel. And David looks around, and nobody's answering Matter of fact, they're all cowering down, scared to death. David, the chosen one of God, for the people of Israel in that time, a shadow of the son of David that's coming, he says, Who will answer? I will. I'll go out there and fight him. And his brothers said, No, no, you're just a young boy. Get out of here. You're causing problems. His brothers rejected him. He came to them, but they rejected him. They wanted him to go back to his father's house. Get out of here. We're men of war. You're a little kid. Get out of here. We don't want you. Not unlike the reality, the real Savior and champion who came to his brothers, and his brothers received him not. But someone takes him up. The, 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 The... The words of David went before Saul. And Saul said, bring this guy here. Bring him in. Let's talk. And so he offers him his armor and his sword. And David straps it all on. And he's like, man, this is the wisdom of this world. I don't need this. Take this off. He He defied the world's philosophy and the world's wisdom. He had a different wisdom and a different philosophy. This was his wisdom. I was out there keeping the sheep and a mountain lion came upon a a, a small lamb. The Spirit of God filled me. I ran on that line and I killed him with my bare hands. Another day I was sitting out in the field thinking about God, writing some worship songs and prayers that the people of Israel could sing. And A bear came and took a lamb and the Spirit of God filled me and I ran on that bear and I killed it. And so, pardon me, king, with all of your wisdom and your philosophy of this world and your armor and your sword and all your power and strength. I don't need that. God is with me. And he walked out on the battlefield with five stones in his bag. He walks out with his shepherd's stick. And he faces this great giant, this Philistine champion that had never been defeated. When the Philistine sees him, he doesn't see much. 
am I? A dog? That you come out here as a boy with a stick to fight me? I've been fighting since I was a youth, and I've yet to lose. You come after me with a stick and some rocks? He's taunting David. And this is what David says. Now, you need to hear this. This is what David says. David says these words to him. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord, the host, God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you in my hand, and I will strike you down and cut your head off. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. So far, so good with them. Our Sunday school lesson is tracking. Y'all are all going to be feeling like I can slay the giant until these words. It says then that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know, the people of God, the assembly, the church, same word, the church, may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle belongs to the Lord, and He will give you into my hand. This is not a story about a little shepherd that went onto a battlefield and won a great victory. This is a story about a shepherd boy who was chosen one of Israel who went to defy the enemy, the greatest enemy, the Philistine giant, not with his strength, not with his power, not by the might of this world, but by the God of Israel he came to face this giant. And he, with utter confidence, said, I'm going to cut your head off and I'm going to feed the bodies of your compadres to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field today. And the reason I'm going to do it is because God is God. And his name is greatly to be praised. That's basically what he said. And with these words, David faced the giant. He struck him with a stone. He ran at him, took his own sword, the giant sword, and cut his head off. And the Bible says something very amazing. These cowards have been hiding in ditches for 40 days. When they see their champion go on the field and cut the head off of the giant, they run on the enemy with all the courage of seasoned soldiers, and they defeat the Philistines from there all the way back home. They killed them all along the way. They chased them and annihilated them that day. Why? Because the victory was won when the champion cut Goliath's head off. This is what I'm saying. They were cowering down, and David was out there, and they're thinking, oh, this ain't going to be good. We really like him. He's a good dude. I thought he was going to be somebody. And David walked out there saying, I'm a nobody, but the Spirit of God is in me, and the God of heaven will deliver you into my hands. Not by my might, not by my strength, and not by the philosophy of this world will I win, but by the Spirit of the Almighty, God of hosts, will I win. And when he cut Goliath's head off, those cowards that were cowering became courageous beasts. Why? Because their champion was in front of them and he had defeated the worst of the worst and they said, if, if we're with him, then we win. And they ran on the Philistines and they defeated them. This story is nothing but a shadow in the Old Covenant. It's real, it's true, it's historical, but it is a shadow that points us to the reality of the true king of Israel, the son of David, the, David, the lion of Judah, the lamb that was slain to defeat 
death, and sin and deliver the entire assembly of the people from the greatest enemy they have ever faced, the church. Listen, church, do you see in this historical narrative the truth that Christ's Great victory over death is our victory, which is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus was born into a family of the tribe of Judah, overlooked by the world, and nothing outwardly that would show that he was and his brothers rejected him. There's nothing to him to draw him to anyone. He came to his brothers, and his brothers rejected him. He went through Israel, defeating leprosy, defeating blindness, defeating lack. Defeating death itself, he raised Lazarus and others from the dead while he was still living. Before he died, he was already defeating death. But ultimately, Christ Jesus went on the battlefield of Golgotha to face our greatest enemy and giant. The greatest enemy and giant the world has ever known, Satan and sin and hell. And he faced them at Golgotha. And Grace Fellowship... I declare to you, he cut the head off. He cut the head off. He defeated hell. God the Father received the sacrifice which was perfect from his son. And God the Father raised him from the dead so that he will never die again. And... After being buried for three days and being raised from the dead, he ascended back to heaven. And the reason that he was raised on the third day, Peter gives us the answer. Because death could not hold him. Because it had no power over him. Christ defeats death and sin because he is the God-man. Taken on flesh, conquered death's sting. Grace Fellowship, what in the world are we waiting on and why are we not filled with courage we should be running at the gates of hell because the gates of hell cannot prevail against us because our great champion Jesus Christ has already defeated hell Christ has cut off the head of the enemy, and he has empowered us. He has empowered us to slay our enemy. And that brings us to the final point that I want to make today, which is Christ has conquered death, defeated sin, and will raise us from the dead. Therefore, we abound in the work of the Lord. That's how this passage ends. Verse 58. There always others be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, overflowing in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why, why are so many of us cowering in the trenches and believing that this already defeated enemy is more powerful than the Holy Spirit? which raised Christ from the dead and now dwells in us because our great champion has sent him to us that we would not be alone. Why are we cowering down, Grace Fellowship, in the trenches like we have no shot? 
Do you not know how great these enemies are that surround us, Carlton? I know what you're thinking. Pornography and lust and adultery and homosexuality and pride and lying and the love of money and anger and slander and drug addiction are lying to you, Grace Fellowship, when they say that you cannot defeat them, that you belong to them, and that they will drag you body and soul to the great lake of fire. Listen to me, Christians. If you can hear me, listen to these words. I want you to rise up. Christ wants you to rise up out of the trenches. Now that your champion has won the great victory, he wants you to rise up. Matthew 16 does not say Jesus is going to build a church and it's going to sit defensively by while it's assailed from hell. He says, I will build my rock on this, I mean, I will build my church on this rock. And the gates of hell will not, what? What? That's not defensive. Jesus is not saying, hold up in some Holy Rollers convention over here within the walls of safety. He's saying storm hell because I have defeated its greatest champion. Jesus Christ is calling you to get up from the computer and quit dying the death that he already paid for you. Quit it. Stop it. Stop acting like I'm powerless in the face of these great giants. The greatest giant you or I will ever face is Satan and death, and Jesus Christ already swallowed them up. He already did. And so he's calling us to get up out of our cowardice balls of fear and rise up and confront the enemy. And you say, that's dangerous. No, no, it's not, because this is how we confront it. When you enter a fight with one of these lesser enemies, this is what you say, I'm a sinner. I mean, sin is right in front of you. Quit thinking about your neighbor's sin. Think about your sin. The one you sin over and over and over and over again. And you've convinced yourself, it's okay. One day I'll be free from it. But right now, it's just too big. It's too, just too great. I can't beat it. Stop believing the lie. There's only two things possibly true about you. Either you belong to Jesus Christ and in Him you have victory and therefore you are free from the power of sin and death and you can reign over it in this life through the power of the Holy Spirit or you are dead in your sins and trespasses and you cannot defeat your enemy because you do not have Christ. And you've gone on to a mortal fleshly battle with a great enemy that is slaying you. It's one of the two. Stop acting like there's a third option. Well, Jesus is my Savior, but I can't, I can't not sin. And enter the fight admitting your sin. I am a sinner, but I have a great victor, and his name is Jesus Christ. He has cut the head off of your greatest champion, Satan, and death. And I trust fully in him and him alone. And now I refuse to let you defeat me because I want the world to know that there is a God in Anniston, Alabama, and in Grace Fellowship, and in the universal. I want his name to be praised from all nations starting right here, right now, in this fight, today. So Jesus has set me free from you, therefore I will bow my knee and sin and walk out on it. While sin overtook him, I think salvation and the breastplate of 
shield of faith and the belt of truth and the sword of the spirit and the gospel shoes that shot his feet and he took his stand and he refused to bow the knee to sin. So why are you and I bowing our knee to it? The greatest has already been defeated, so the lessers are nothing. You know how incongruous it is to say, Jesus defeated death, but he can't defeat my lying habit. Is that silly? I'm asking. Maybe it's not. Maybe I'm foolish. I mean, y'all looking at me like I am. To be honest with you, because I'll tell you why you are. I'll tell you why you're looking at me like that. Because you've lived an entire life in the false belief that Jesus' work has no practical implication on your life. It eternally saves me, but it can't deliver me from sin today. And that is a lie from the enemy. I'm calling the men of Grace Fellowship to stand up. Get out of the trenches and face the enemy, not in your power, but in his power. And say, look, my champion's already won this fight. And I refuse to sit here and be defeated by this. In the name of Jesus Christ, I will not bow my knee to this temptation. I'll walk out. And cut off whatever it is that keeps bringing you back into it. Cut it off. That's what Jesus said. Your right hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, do what? Pluck it out. Why? Because it's better to enter heaven maimed and blind than to go to hell. Some of us need to believe that in our heart. Some of you are letting a little phone built in China for mere dollars and sold to you as a promise which it's a lie, and you can't quit looking at its content. Whether it's pornography or ball games or, or Facebook or Twitter or the news, you keep looking at it. And it's just eating your lunch, and you need to stand up and say, I'm not doing that. I'm done with it. I don't have to keep bowing the knee. Some of you's marriages are about to end because you believe this lie, and you're bowing the knee to the fact that divorce is inevitable and there's nothing we can do about it because, you know, Jesus is going to save us one day, but right now, his salvation has no impact on us. You're believing a lie. And you need the courage of the Savior. Not my strength and not the chariots of this world and not the ways of this world's philosophy, but in him I have victory and rise up and fight. Now, I know that this bothers some of us. But listen, Paul talked this way in another place. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. If you think these ramblings of this crazed, excitable preacher might be off a tick. I would tell you that's Satan working right now to get you to believe his lie. He's sowing seeds of doubt right now. Fight him with these words. Who will deliver me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus for the law of, uh, from the law of sin and death. Listen to this. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. 
By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We like that first part about who's going to deliver me from the body of sin, Jesus Christ. We like that part. And no condemnation. I'm all in. Praise God. That's going to happen. How many of you know that next part? He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in us. That's a right now statement. You think Paul doesn't understand the battle with sin? He just said, I fight this battle every day in my flesh. And yet God had delivered me through his son Jesus Christ. And therefore, therefore, I am capable in him of walking not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Sanctification is not some separate work. It's done in Christ, our champion. Grace Fellowship, we are victorious because we are in Christ. We need to stop acting like a bunch of spiritual sissies and rise up out of the shadow of death and fear and fight for the glory of Jesus until he returns to raise our bodies from the dead. Or transform us in the twinkling of an eye. Into the likeness of his resurrected flesh. Listen, one of the greatest privileges that I have is to stand over the grave of gone saints. I look into that pit. I watch that casket lower down into the ground. I want to tell you what in my heart and mind. You say, well, it's easy for you because it's not. No, I have preached, I've been blessed to preach the funeral of my own grandparents, all four of them, my own mother, my own daughter. And when they let the casket down in the ground, my heart, weeping externally, my heart rose up to say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, grave. Where's your victory for the sting of death is sin. Thanks be to God, he put on flesh and conquered that for me. And for my grandmother, and for my granddaddy, and for my mother, and for my dead daughter. Weeping and yet rejoicing at the fact that it is unchangeable, that God is greater than all of my sin. And I leave, the, the, I leave often from those places with more encouragement and courage than ever before. Because if he has defeated that pit, then this little pit I'm dealing with over here ain't nothing. And that's what I'm telling you today. Then we need to rise up like that and fight every single day in the power of Jesus Christ because he has conquered sin and death in the flesh. And we're going to see the ultimate fulfillment of this passage when we stand in the presence of the Lord and this truth happens. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, Jesus Christ our victor said, Behold, I am making what? All things new. That reality empowers our reality today. That reality makes me resist sin. That reality causes me to defeat these little penny ante giants in life. You say, well, you're talking about they're, like they're nothing. They are nothing in comparison to Him. Whatever it is you're serving besides Him is nothing. Your fake gods will fall down and worship the true God. When he says, I make all things new, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to him, me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers, you see it? The one who conquers, not the cowards in the trench, the one who run on the battlefield, the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowards... The faithless, the detestable, as for idolaters and liars, the, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So I call you, Grace Fellowship, to rise up and quit being a coward because your eternal life depends on it. Rise up as an army out of the trenches and fight because your champion has already won the war. This battle you fight today pales in comparison. So get up in his strength and fight. Until he comes again. And when he comes again, death will be no more. Sin will be no more. Pain will be no more. Suffering will be no more. And we will reign with him forever. And he will be our God. And we will be his people. Is that the desire of your heart? Strip everything else away and get to who you are. I'm going to get serious with you for just a minute. There's two types of people in this room. There's people who already know this reality and need the courage to stand up and live in it. And there are those of you on the other side of it who don't know this reality. And so everything I've said to you today is intended to bring you to this moment where you bow your knee not to the idols of this world, but to the true God of Israel and call on him while you may be saved. There's some people here that need to be saved. You need to quit playing games. Stop pretending to be what you are not. You can't dress death up. You can't hide from its reality. You must come to be in Christ. And then it has no hold on you. I want to lay on my deathbed with my last thoughts. I want to tell those around me, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I want you to do it with me. And it's only possible if you know him as your Savior right now. Some of us need to bow our head now as an outward symbol of bowing our hearts before the King and call on his name. Some of us need to bow our heads Thank God for our Savior and our victor and our champion. 
confess our sins and ask for renewed strength to join the fight of the already defeated enemy. And so that's what I call you to. I, I want to end this way today. Adam, if you and the team will come back. And I want us to sing. First, I want them to sing the first verse to us. And I want you to think. And I want you to pray. And I want you to really deal with God. I feel heavy that today is the day for some of you to know Christ for the first time. How? How do I know him? All these things are true. I believe it, but how do I know him? Call on him as the Lord and Savior and repent of your own sin, your own way, your own selfishness. Repent, in other words, and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some of you need to do that for the very first time today. And some of us, the rest of us, need to ask Christ for courage. And I want us to sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Those words are what we are saying as a prayer to God. Come and be with us. You don't have to rise up. You don't have to stand up. Sit where you are. Pray. Seek Christ. Know him. I'll be right here. If you want to come forward talk with me, I'm right here. If you don't, that's fine. Look, the thing you need to do is come to Christ. That's what you need to do. You need to come to Christ. You don't need to come to me. You need to come to Jesus. But if it would help you to talk with someone, I'm right here. And I'll be here. So these guys and girls are going to sing us out of here. We're going to pray. We're going to seek Christ. And then when they're done, we're dismissed. And you can leave. And I just ask that if you're dealing with Christ, that you truly deal with him today, be saved today. Because there may be no tomorrow. And if you are saved, live like the reality of the new earth is right here upon us. Let's sing. Let's listen to them sing. Let's pray.